Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod, and this week it's episode number 86, um, and it's with Stuart Murdoch, who is the director of Leisure and Culture Dundee. And uh, as I record this, um, Stuart's position's actually been advertised as he is uh, going to retire in the not too distant future. Um, so we talk a bit about that and his sort of plans for afterwards. Um, but also we, we sort of go through this, this sort of span of career and I felt it was really important to to sort of catch him before he before he retired um, to, to give us his story and um, chat through how, how he sees Dundee, how he's felt his time has been um, and all the, the great things that he's achieved within that time. Um, and it, I mean, the episode is... is, is genuinely fascinating and I, so I didn't expect anything else from Stuart I mean one of the one of the big things that he says he talks about anyone in, uh, who has the privilege of a role such as a director um, the most important thing is to be an enabler um, and I thought it's just such a good point um, that having people in a position of power especially um, heads of, of organisations or um, local authorities or big companies to have that mentality to facilitate and enable other people to bring ideas and thoughts and visions to life and, and so Stuart says that um, over the years he's sort of surrounded himself by people who make things happen and that's the people who he loves working with um, and that's what he's most proud of is just having helped make so many things happen over the years um, and all I can hope is that when he, he does retire and he is replaced that um, whoever takes on that role has that same outlook, has that same mentality because it's it's absolutely paramount for the creative community, the cultural sector in Dundee that that, that happens and that um, the great energy that, that Stuart has and has brought to that, that role that that continues um, long beyond him and I, I think we also get into the, the sort of structure of Leisure and Culture in Dundee and how that was formed and the sort of Stuart's been there through that it's um, the combination of all these different bodies and then to what it is now and then through the um, capital culture uh, bids as well and what came out of that and actually how positive um, those experiences were and that leading on to the UNESCO City of Design designation um, and even the, the sort of the, the structure of the organisations and how how that works with the sort of the local authority and how the council supports elements of that and um, this idea of, of risk um, and creating organisations within a city that enable, that local authority can support but also enables uh, these other bodies to, to take risks um, and do more exciting and interesting things. And I think, um, yeah, I'm, I could go on, I could go on and just ramble about um so many of the great points i mean it, it's just yeah i'll shut up uh yeah let's get into the episode so this is number 86 and this is with stuart murdoch so when i when i in my case um i trained in glasgow as a community worker and that was influential i'd come from fife i'd been brought up uh, outside st andrews uh, i'd always been interested in issues to do with fairness, if you like, or equity. And my parents had both had strong kind of socialist principles, if you like. They were both active in the church. They saw that in their life as a way of addressing inequality. And I decided to do something called community education, which neither of them have heard of. 
and probably very few of the people listening to this have heard of. So I went off to Glasgow and I trained for three years in Glasgow. And that was, for me, a, a great experience. I thought the people who were involved in training that court in, in, the, in the, the academic side, the people who were involved in the practice side, um, really shifted my worldview and, and affirmed things that I, I believed in. And I saw Glasgow in the, when did I go there? It's 1973, uh, 73 to 76. Um, so that was before the M8 was open. I've got the, the uh, almost unique distinction of having cycled over the Kingston Bridge, the, the M8 bridge before it was opened, one dark night coming back from the pub to get to where I was staying. Um, that was good. 12 lanes of motorway and just me and the bike. <laughs> um, but I loved Glasgow and I worked there for 17 years actually in, in different community development roles. And in that time, if you worked in communities, you're dealing with housing and planning issues. And I was being told by people who were professional in housing and planning, oh, you didn't understand, son, you know, you're not, a, you're not a planner. So I went and got myself a postgraduate qualification in urban planning. And that made it easier to have a dialogue with urban planners. So what I did in Glasgow was really community regeneration work. I was working in Maryhill and what was called GEAR, the Glasgow Eastern Area Renewal Project, East End of Glasgow. And it was great fun. I don't know how far back you want me to go. So after that, I, in 1990, I applied for a job in Tayside. It was still when there was regions and districts. So what, why the why the move, why, why the, the change? Well, I'd been brought up on the East Coast and my family was still, my parents were still East Coasters. And I suppose I, at that time I had two young kids and the quality of life uh, of living in the country or close to the country had an appeal. So I thought, right, if I don't do it now, they'll be in primary school. And so I left just before the eldest went into primary school and she went into primary one in Brotty Ferry. And, uh, and we had a, a third child here. So I, I moved at the time when, I guess you're questioning, were you going to spend the next 20 years? And uh, I actually came for a five-year contract, but that was something like 30 years ago. <laughs> it's amazing how many people come to Dundee for a tiny, like yeah, a relatively yeah. small, and they stay. Uh, and at that time, I mean, Dundee, oh my God, it was a shock coming from Glasgow to Dundee. It really was. I mean, you couldn't get a cappuccino in Dundee. Seriously. We, in fact, a, a few years later, we started a thing called the Cappuccino Index, and we kept it going for a few years because, you know, in, in about, I suppose that was 91, 92, you couldn't get a cappuccino. But by 93, you could get four, and by 2000, we stopped counting. And that's a kind of measure in a bizarre way of the way the city was changing at that period. People were coming here, the student population was changing, the Wellcome Trust influence in Dundee was dramatic um, and it always felt as Glasgow did actually it always felt like a city that was aspirational and proud and was trying to change so it's been a great place because I think I mean even historically you look at how like even the food and drink sector that industry has, has grown massively like in Edinburgh and Glasgow and obviously they've got a, a much greater population so there's yeah. a bigger drive yeah. for those sorts of things and then Dundee I mean, we have this amazing momentum and change, but we don't necessarily have things as, as yeah. quickly and as soon as, as they do appear in other cities. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, I agree with that. I think that Dundee has to find its own way. At one point, and I'll go back again to sort of <clears throat> the early 90s, um, people said Dundee should look to Edinburgh for inspiration. 
And I was never convinced about that. And today I'm absolutely not convinced about it. Edinburgh's Edinburgh and Dundee's Dundee and Glasgow's Glasgow. And a city has to find <clears throat> it has to find its own identity and its own aspiration and make its own way forward. And Dundee's done that in a particular way. And I think it's recognised for that today. So when you first came, that, that first role, what was that in, in Tayside? Well, it was Tayside, which was, you know, I, I still see merit in a region called Tayside. Not everybody did. But uh, Tayside combined Dundee, which had most of the poverty, most of the deprivation, most of the social challenges, with all of the assets that Angus and Perth and Ross had. And it combined them in a way that tried to play to the strength of the different parts of, the, of, of that region. And being slightly larger, it had a bigger budget and it had more capacity for change. The job I came to was called the Regional Community Education Officer. And that was a great job. So it would mean that some mornings you'd get in the car and drive all the way up to Loch Tay, where we had an outdoor centre in Fiernan, or to the Angus Glens, where an outdoor centre at Blackwater. Um, but most of the work I did was in Dundee, and my you know, continuing interest is in the way that cities change and regenerate. And so when it was decided to bring Tayside to an end and go down to three unitary co uh, councils, Prethgan Ross, Angus, uh, and, and Dundee City, uh, it was a no-brainer I was going to stay in Dundee. That's where my focus was. And so what, what role did you move into to then after that? I, I went into what was called Neighbourhood Resources and Development. Didn't exactly trip off the tongue. The acronym was NERDS, <laughs> which was not very good. Um, so I went into that, but that was actually about bringing together what was delivered at a neighbourhood level. So it was about area regeneration, about engaging people, about libraries, about community centres. Uh, and I got I got the job of we changed the title of the department actually so instead of being um, head of neighbourhood resources and development it changed into director of communities and that was I, I think that was a great job title it was a real privilege to be uh, a director of services provided to communities and in Dundee we set out to really strongly embrace the way that communities could influence those services so Dundee's community decision structures, its uh, way in which it engaged people, um, the way it tried to balance off representative democracy at a local level with participative democracy at a local level. Very tricky thing to do. No one will ever get that right, but that's an enduring challenge. And Dundee was right at the vanguard of trying to work out how you got people from communities to stand up and take a say in decision-making for those areas while at the same time recognise that there's something called an elected member who's already been elected to represent that area. Uh, at one end, that's a challenge. And I think the council needs to take great credit for the way it allowed those structures to develop in Dundee over the years. And they still exist, different format, but they still exist today. So we ran and developed and influenced most of what was delivered at a community level that wasn't um, allocated, if you like, to something called education, or to social work, or to environmental services. So it was a great kind of combination. And then, uh, you know, as, as things change, um, a colleague who was running arts and heritage in Dundee left for another job, and the decision was taken to combine arts and heritage with communities, and that became Leisure and Communities. And then another colleague who was running 
the leisure and parks department left and that became added in as well. So the, the, what became leisure and communities continued that kind of journey of including things, but included the, the leisure and arts and cultural activity. And then there was another reorganization. Don't ask me the years of these things. And um, the, at that time, it was decided to, to create a kind of a big trust, an arm's length charitable organization. Uh, and that took responsibility for what was essentially arts, heritage, libraries, sport, leisure, uh, that, that kind of activity. Which is an, an enormous responsibility within a city. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been really important. I mean, you could say, and many people do, is that is the area that you want to get value from your community charge. You want to have a library, you want to have sports, you want to have access to good parks and leisure and good culture. So for people who are paying their taxes, those services really matter because that's the ones that they, they take most use of. For a period in life, uh, families will use the education service. It's actually comparatively short period. And for a period in life, people will need social welfare. You have to hope that's a comparatively short period. But most of us, for most of our lives, will use the public services that are provided in the, fa- in the name of culture, arts, leisure. So how do you ensure that, that what you do provide is is relevant, is interesting, is exciting, mm. and engages everyone in all the communities around the city? Yeah, good. well, that's again an enduring question. I think that comes down to being open to suggestions. It comes down to having the kind of staff we've got in Dundee who are very proactive. I mean, I think our library service is without question one of the best in Scotland in terms of what is innovated, how it's listened to people who use that service, how it's changed. I mean, librarians have changed their jobs fundamentally in the last 10, 15 years. Um, of course, they still provide books, but they've become much more navigators of information services, frontline providers of support to people at a neighbourhood level. And in a city like Dundee with low car ownership, with high levels of poverty, uh, with people you know, who, who want in a, a local neighbourhood to be able to walk to a friendly point of social contact, I can't think of anywhere else that the public sector provides at a neighbourhood level that you can walk in and ask for help. We'll give people um, email access, we'll give them an email address, we'll give them an email dropbox if they don't have stuff at home. Um, we'll provide them with a free phone access to uh, social security, to other, other agencies, to the health board. And librarians are, are handling a really diverse range of inquiries at a neighbourhood level right across Dundee. And I think, I mean, there's obviously, I mean, you see it across a lot of different industries, there are... There's a strain on roles because resources become restricted and as, as budget cuts happen, um, people have to take on extra responsibilities in order to provide a service that's, that is of a high quality but is also relevant to the needs of the people who they see every day. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely relevant to, to librarians who are on, the, on that front line mm-hmm. dealing with people day in, day out who, yeah, their issues aren't just I can't find a book. It's there is so mm. like a sort of a massive complexity to those those issues that they they face. It's a very different job. I mean, if you go back twenty years to, or even well, go back less than that, but that that kind of era, the 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 library was still providing books. It was still providing daily papers, and people would come in because it was a safe place. But the image was of a quiet place that you came into and sat down. 
going to the Central Library today, Quiet Place is probably the last kind of impression you'd get. We've had live music in there. We've had drop-ins for all sorts of things. There's exhibitions that are there 52 weeks a year. And the exhibitions are completely diverse, some of them really challenging, uh, and some of them very straightforward exhibitions. Uh, we had the Anne Frank uh, exhibition, the kind of replica of the house that Anne Frank lived in uh, during the period that she was um, being hidden, I guess, in, in, in Amsterdam. And uh, a huge number of young people, school-age kids, came into that house and got the kind of physical reality of the space that she was in writing her diaries in a central library in Dundee. That's not something people would associate with going to a library, but it was actually challenging all, all the kind of uh, debates that we need to have today about xenophobia, the rise of the right wing, uh, the environment uh, that led to the, the Second World War, etc., etc., etc. So libraries have changed, there's no question, uh, but they still remain really accessible points of social support which are not stigmatised. You know, everybody can use a library. It was the first uh, recycling public service in the world. And that should be a claim that it, it holds dear. Why would you buy a book? Why would you buy a book from Amazon, read it and chuck it away when you can go and actually everyone can read that book multiple times? It's much more environmentally friendly, etc. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> and it's about that, I mean, shared resource. Yeah. And I think there's lots of other businesses looking at those models. How do you, if everyone has these resources, how do mm -hmm. we pull them together and share them? Um, and do, do, do you know that, no, I'm just going to say, I don't know if you, you remember, but um, Dundee's library service was the first in Britain, certainly in Scotland. I mean, have to watch my claim. I don't overclaim that, do I? The first in Scotland to have digital printing. Now, I'm not sure we fully exploited that, but we did get out there and there's still digital printers and people can still generate programs and material at home and get them digitally printed. And I think that that type of role for libraries, because not everyone's going to want a digital printer at home, not just in terms of space, but in terms of the cost uh, and in terms of quality. But that type of future technology role is where great libraries need to go. Yeah, because I mean, that was going to be my next question. Is what, so for you, what, what is the future of libraries and where would you like to see them, them go? I'd like to see them being protected better. That's starting point one. I think there's, they are an easy hit. You know, why do we need so many community libraries? Well, actually, there's a story there. They're, they're low cost. They are accessible. Uh, they provide this diverse range of first point of contact uh, for citizens who need help, as well as a book borrowing service. I think they need to be invested in if they're going to continue to perform that role. And it may be that the future of libraries is to go much more into multi-use community hubs, something that you might previously have called a school. But school is only used for a short part of the day, and it's only used for a short part of the year. It's closed, and it's a very expensive resource to run. So the future schools, and people can see these round, you don't have to go very far to see great examples of community schools or resources which have schools within them, nurseries within them, health facilities within them, technology centres within them. And Dundee is, is currently looking, and there will be a debate over the next few years about what the new secondary school in the west of a city and the new secondary school in the east of a city should look like. And I think within that, right at the centre of that, there'll be a cafe, there'll be a, a, a music centre, there'll be a resource centre, and people might call that a library. 
So to move back to your to your journey, mm-hmm. um, we sort of got to the point where Leisure and Culture Dundee was forming. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you you first came into that bigger uh, overarching trust organisation, um, what was your role within that? I was the director. So the the, the job I, I have currently is uh, described as the director for Leisure and Culture for Dundee City. One part of which is to run that trust. In fact, eighty percent of it, probably ninety percent of it, is to run the trust. But the other bit's really important because it means supporting organisations like DCA, like the v Dundee, like Dundee Rep, like the Heritage Trust, and looking at how they're funded, how they're supported. And, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of being involved with, with each of them over the years in terms of their development. So the role is, is part um, to be involved within the City Council, its management team, and to be accountable to councillors for that kind of wider cultural agenda, leisure and sport agenda. And then the managerial delivery job is to actually run this thing called Leisure and Culture Dundee, which is a trust. And the, the reason for it being a trust um, is is multiple, but it started off because uh, there was a saving financially of rates. So non-domestic rates um, were not paid by, le- by, by charitable organisations. And so there was a financial saving to Dundee, which was significant. But by having, it goes back to having community involvement, by having a board that was actively engaged in the delivery of leisure, arts, culture and sport, we were able to get a very strong community engagement from that board, each of whom have their own networks. And we've been really lucky from the get-go in that trust in having a board that has put a huge amount of voluntary time in. They're completely unpaid, the trustees. Um, And they're kind of our conscience so if they see something they don't like, they can raise it with the head of service, myself or anybody else. And and they meet very regularly. They're meeting monthly. Um, they're looking at performance of the trust, financial performance, quality of service. And they're a diverse board. They represent many of the communities and sectors across the city. And they're not a static board. You get elected for three years. At the end of that, you have to be re-elected. Once you've done six years, you're off and new people come in. So it's, it's a, a process that's renewed, that is open to recruitment. There's been competition for people coming onto the trust board. And so that, combined with the charitable status, combined with the financial saving, and combined with the fact that if you are at arm's length from local government, you're still totally dependent on Dundee City Council. They own all our buildings. They provide the heat and light for most of those buildings. But we are given the permission, the freedom, to innovate and to experiment and to take risks, which would be more difficult for a city council to do. And if something went wrong, someone would get political um, stick for it. Whereas the trust can do that kind of thing with a little bit more freedom. And of course, things like the design festival and the bids that we've led for UK capital culture, European capital culture, allowed us to draw in money from other sources. But it would be more difficult for the city council to get its hands on. So let's yeah let's talk about those those bids and how they how they came about in the in mm-hmm. the first instance. Again, if if uh, the advantage of being here for a while, <laughs> if you go back to, I guess, um, two thousand and nine, there was a, a debate about should we bid to become UK Capital Culture, and in the city's cultural strategy, which is the way that all these organisations that I'm talking about collaborate. Um, one of the things that we wanted to do was to profile this city's cultural offer more internationally, more 
more within the UK. So the best way of doing that, we thought, was to bid to become the UK Capital of Culture. <clears throat> and a lot of the things that are in the cultural strategy had to be done to secure that bid. So we, we were talking at that time about the redevelopment of the Waterfront Project, trying to get an iconic um, partner. You know, even before the, the V&A was signed up, there was an aspiration to have an anchor organisation right at the centre of the Waterfront development that would be a cultural um, driver. And you know, people in Dundee at the time were taking inspiration from what Bill Bowe had done with the Guggenheim. It had, it had taken a, a northern Spanish um, in post-industrial town, which nobody really knew about, and it had turned it into a tourist destination by having a global cultural attraction and a reason for going to, to that place. So it changed the aspirations in, 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 in Bilbao. So that was in the, in, in the thinking. And, and if you're doing those kinds of things, you want to profile it and bidding to become recognised within the UK as a capital of culture looked like the thing to do. And so how did, how did that process work then from the, the point at which you decided, right, mm. we're going to go for this, we're going to make this happen. How did the process go from, uh, from there? It couldn't have gone if we hadn't done what we'd done in the five years previously, which was to build a partnership of cultural organisations. So right at the core of the bid from the get-go were organisations like the DCA, Dundee Rep, Creative Dundee, which was in its infancy at that, at that stage, and uh, all of the other cultural organisations, including our key partners, both universities, Abertay Dundee University and the City Council. So all of the partners were signed up. There is a thing called the Dundee Partnership, and, and it was easy to sign them up through that mechanism. And the bid wasn't put forward as a City Council bid or a Leisure and Culture Dundee bid. It was put forward under the banner of Dundee Partnership. And, and so um, there, there was a core group. Uh, we... we, we uh, brought in an organisation called Creative Scotland to provide an external view and, and to help us. Um, Brian Beattie came in at that point to help work with all those partners and the core team to actually scope out what the themes of a bid might look like, how it could develop, and to do the kind of legwork in terms of what would it cost to deliver. Was the city big enough? Um, did it have hotels and bed spaces? They don't have venues that were big enough to actually host a, a venue like uh, an event like uh, the UK Capital Culture, and you know that that was what that was all about. And in that process, um, because of the DNA of the Dundee way of doing things, there was an absolute commitment to community engagement, to youth engagement, and that led to the campaign We Dundee, which I think is still fantastic. I love it. Yeah, I mean it. it it sort of it captured the the perspectives, the yeah. thoughts, the opinions yeah. of the the citizens of Dundee, which was was brilliant and, and sort yeah. of encapsulated them all on a platform where they could all come together and be discussed and and uh, everyone yeah. could yeah. contribute as that sort of leveling factor, which I think is really nice. Um, no, it is, and the, and the, the the distinguishing thing of Dundee's bid is all these bids are written by consultant teams. None of them had the roots into the city and could prove it in the way that Dundee could prove it. And we took what people had said they loved best about Dundee as the themes of the bid, you know that. So the, 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 the themes that emerged and around which the whole bid would have been delivered and curated were the, were the things that were mentioned most often by people as the things that they loved about the city. The river, the, the, the south-facing sunlight that the city attracts, um, all of those things, the partnerships in the city. So, that, you know, 
it was very much, well, it was written by a team. It was very much a, a, a community of interest. And a lot of people posted. I think it's still up online. I think it's a fantastic mm-hmm. resource. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if people want to see it, weedundee.com. I think so. I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes. <laughs> so it'll be there for you. Have a look at. I think it's great. And I know that students at the University of Dundee who've look at, looked at these things will mine that data. It's, it's a mine of fabulous community intelligence from thousands of people across the city about the things they love about it. And actually what they love about it is what is driving the city forward. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what you were talking about with the, the sort of democratic approach to to empowering people within their own communities to have a say um, and actually have their voices heard. And again, it's a theme that's gone through this year's Design Festival as well and through a lot of work that's been done. And I think that's what what's great about the city is that... that that desire to to have a level playing field where everyone can just get involved, uh, especially when in the realms of, of culture and creativity as well. Yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously, ultimately and sadly, the the bid wasn't successful. I could have just cracked you there. We didn't win it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, right. so okay, yeah, yeah. it depends how you define success. Mm-hmm. Most of the criteria that we set for success were about profile, about delivering projects about attracting external funding, about the aspirations. And actually some of the projects, like the um, cardboard arch project, the, 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 the replica of the, 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 the um, Victorian Albert Arch that Claire Dow produced with uh, Pierre Gostet, were done. And, and, and then became, they became symbols in their own light, right? What we didn't get was the accolade of the title, UK Capital of Culture. And Hull got it, and good luck to them. They did a great year, and, and, and they did it very well. But a title like UK Capital Culture, if you speak to Hull and you speak to Derry, both of whom we've had it previously, it's a one-year wonder. You've got the, the one-year build-up, the one-year delivery, and then what next? And so in some senses, by not winning it and by continuing the journey of culture-led regeneration and by, at that point, using the bid to, bid to become a UNESCO creative city, We've got something that wasn't going to disappear at the end of the year. And as long as we're careful with it, Dundee can be a creative city recognised by UNESCO globally forever. So we would never have become a UNESCO creative city if it hadn't been for the UK Capital Culture bid. And the best legacy of that bid actually was getting the UNESCO designation a creative city. And so how did that that process come about? Because obviously mm. the, the UNESCO team sits within the leisure and culture yeah. um, sort of umbrella, if you like. Um, but so how did how did Dundee become a UNESCO City of Design? Well, it, it, the, the opportunity to bid to UNESCO for Creative City designation had been around previously. So is that an, is it an open process where is, anyone yeah. can... It's, it's at the moment, and it still is biannual. So every second year, a city can bid. Um, and the criteria at that time was, was quite a high bar. They're, they're, they have a number of subcategories. So you, you, you can't become just a creative city per se. You have to say, we're going to be a creative city of, in Dundee's case, design. Um, or it could be a creative city like Edinburgh, literature, Glasgow, music, um, York, media studies. So these designations, there's about six or seven designations. And the one that fitted Dundee brilliantly was design because of our, our whole design history, what we're doing in terms of design, the building of Scotland's Museum of Design, the v the use of design going forward in terms of redesigning public services. So design was absolutely the one that we wanted to get. But we couldn't have done the bid and we wouldn't have had the background research and data for that bid 
had we not done the, Euro the UK Capital Culture bid. So it was the bid team or a core of the bid team that actually produced the application for UNESCO in a very short order uh, and managed to get it through and get it approved. And, you know, we are the first, we may be the only UK city of design in the world. It is a great thing that is kind of unsung. And personally, Dundee should make more of it. Because, so how, yeah. how do we do that then? How do, going forward, how do we use that yeah. designation to better serve the city? Well, the, I mean, I guess this chat and the network that uh, this fraternity has uh, is one way of exploiting it. I mean, it, it's, it's there to be used by private sector partners. It's be there to be used by academics, by universities. But actually, it's there as a, as a citizen designation. We are a creative city. We should respect that. We should value that. We should exploit that. Um, you know, if, if you look at the... Just go to any of the state agents and pick up their brochures. A number of them now are quoting the fact that Dundee is, is, is a UNESCO creative city to try and sell houses here. So it, it's, it's used in multiple ways. The universities use it to recruit academics. They use it to recruit students. And... It's something that we have to be careful to predict because we have to, every four years, submit a report on what we've done with the designation. And there is a view within UNESCO because of the demand to become creative cities that if cities are not fully participating in that network, they should be removed from the network to allow other cities to come in. The network is now 180 cities globally, so it's grown significantly since we joined. And their debate is about whether it should be capped. The value of it is almost through its uniqueness rather than its ubiquitousness. So if it gets too wide and too many cities join, then the distinctive nature of it will, will diminish. Uh, at the moment, it is a fantastic global brand and uh, we should really continue to debate. And I would love, I think everyone who's associated with it would love to hear ideas of how could it, how could we make more of it? But what we're finding is that... Um, we're getting continuous visits by other cities of creative aspirations because we have this designation. And this year alone, actually last year, 2018, we had 24 of the global creative cities come with uh, delegations to Dundee, uh, which is fantastic. I mean, fantastic way of marketing the city. It's exactly what we wanted the UK Capital Culture bid to do, but bigged up. Yeah, and I think it's an amazing thing for the city, and I think it's about it's about celebrating the designers that are living, working here, and encouraging other designers and creatives to make Dundee their home. Um, whether that's young designers coming out of the art school, or whether that's people living and working in Edinburgh, Glasgow, or further down south, or whatever, is sort of how do we help that to, to strengthen the design industry, the, the contemporary design industry in, in Dundee? And that is a big challenge. So, again, coming out of the UK Capital Culture bid, Westward Works was identified as um, one of the venues that we would have needed had we won that bid. <clears throat> DC Thompson, who I have to say were fantastic in terms of allowing us to access that as opposed to disposing of it after it had finished its economic use for them, um, you know that that was used for the first design festival. In fact, it was used for the first two design festivals. 
and then a trust has been set up to try through the Tay Cities funding mechanism to turn it into a hub for creative industries and creative spaces. Now, all of that is all part of that journey of actually creating space where designers can find space to work, can find a focal point for engagement, um, can find support in material terms uh, and, and other ways, and create another level of engagement in the city that a number of other European cities, we've looked globally, um, but we've looked in particular at Europe, at where these repurposed industrial buildings have provided a focal point for designers and the design fraternity, if you like, to, to meet. And Dundee needs that. It really does need that to try and hold on to the graduates coming out of Duncan and Jordanson and the college and to create that kind of next level of economic opportunity for people who are designers. Yeah, and I think um, design has that real potential to show the power of change and the potential of spaces. So by moving uh, design and a sort of manifestation as a festival into Westward Works, it showed the potential of that yeah, space. Yeah. Um, and I think as well, going back to this idea of, of risk and the ability to take risks, and I think that's something that the UNESCO team are really starting to to get excited about. Um, whether that's a good thing or not, um, but I think it's it's about having a, a, a sort of critical voice mm. on the on the elements that make up a city and how that works for its citizens and how that works for the design community. And I think that's a really healthy thing to have happening. Um, but what I wanted to ask is where, obviously, you mentioned the network and a lot of amazing cities in Europe mm. and further afield. Um, but which which cities do you look to for inspiration, and what do you see out there in the whole realms of leisure and culture that um, you think they're doing something that's great that we could really learn from? Well, I think we can learn from we can learn bits from all of them. That's the truth of it. So there isn't there isn't one or two. I mean, cities like Leiden, which is literally within ten minutes of Schiphol Airport before you even get to Amsterdam, you go through Leiden. Um, it's the home of the European Space Agency. It's a city pretty much the same size as Dundee. It has 12 major Dutch national cultural organizations based within it. It is a mega cultural hub, and it's where people want to stay. So young people are attracted there. And this whole economy is based on having a fantastic quality of cultural life. I recommend it. People should go there for a weekend sometime, pick a festival. But if it's not a festival on, you'll find so much to see in a city like Leiden. And I'm just mentioning that one because it's the same size as Dundee. Now, in the UNESCO network, we have had the privilege of going to much bigger cities. You know, Singapore is a city and a country. And we are in there as an equal to Singapore, which is crazy. You know, Dundee and Singapore. Um, so you, can take, you can't fail to be inspired by Singapore, but we'll never be able to replicate the, the quality of provision that Singapore has generated. But cities like Leiden, cities like Geelong in, in uh, Australia, um, and a number of other cities, I think Graz probably would be another one that we would take inspiration from. So we can look at comparator cities and say, like, you know, what have you done that we can learn from? And we can look at larger cities and say, um, what could we aspire to do or how can we mirror some of the things that you're doing? And in aspirational terms, it's very hard to look past Helsinki. I mean, Helsinki is incredibly impressive at a number of different levels, but probably most impressive because of the way it's embraced the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. <clears throat> so they've really framed what they're doing in the city around sustainable development, and they see that as a design mission. 
So you've got design right at the core of a city strategy. Design for public transport, design for health delivery, design for education, design for housing, design for sustainable living, design to be light on the environment and high in quality of life. It's really inspirational. And, and yet they come to us and, and they're inspired by our community engagement. They're inspired by We Dundee. And there's this kind of very open exchange, which I love, between the UNESCO cities. Uh, and they were really impressed with this year's design festival and the approach taken because there are very few of these cities, probably Singapore is the exception, that don't have retail failure. So they're looking at what's happening in the high street, what's happening in shopping centres, how do we have to reimagine the use of space in the city centre. And uh, this year's design festival did that in spades. It was great and it was really innovative and it was really challenging. And it, you know, it, it, it provoked thought, which is what we should be all doing. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is, I mean, design in my mind has many different roles, but one of them is absolutely provoking thought and um, discussion. I think that's a really healthy aspect of it, that, that critical discussion needs to exist in order to move forward. And if you don't have that, then people are too, I, well, I worry that people become too protective and too precious over things where mm -hmm. um, it's actually much healthier to, to try something and fail and then recover and just reiterate and change and develop rather than being worried about creating the perfect thing that, that yeah. just exists and that's it. No, I, I think... Uh the, the the kind of Japanese phrase yanbei, you know, just do it. I think there's a lot a lot to be said for that. Not doing it carelessly, but don't spend forever debating whether you should or shouldn't. And we we waste and I, I see, you know, in my working life I see a huge amount of waste in terms of the debate about should we, shouldn't we? And I think um prototyping, getting on with it, doing it and learning from that is much more inspirational, frankly. Yeah, and it's it, it's a, it's a more efficient process that you, you learn from and you can constantly draw from rather than waiting for that perfect end goal to happen and then be finished. It's a, it's a never-ending cycle of, of design and, and refinement and reiteration and development and change as, as the world changes around what you're trying to do. Yeah, I suppose the, 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 tr the danger with some of that or the danger with uh, the perceived danger might be a better way of putting it is if you're using public money and you go out and fail, then there's political risk, there's reputational risk, and that's what leads to a caution. And that's why having arm's length partnerships that are given the permission to take those risks in the knowledge that sometimes they will fail is a great way in which a local authority can cover off its own risks and be more prudent when it has to be more prudent in terms of how it spends money. And I think if you can get that partnership right, it's also a very difficult thing to get the balance right. But uh, having the likes of the DCA as an independent partner means that it can take risks that local authority would find more difficult to take in terms of curatorial choice, content, um, delivery. Uh, and, and yet the local authority is a key partner and a supporter for it and for Leisure and Culture Dundee and for v Dundee. Yeah, and I, th I think it's absolutely key to for that local authority to to build the trust mm -hmm. of the citizens, which, um, with everything at arm's length, is maybe not because you don't necessarily see those connections in the facilitation of that because that's not um, immediately obvious, mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. like. Um, then they don't necessarily get the credit. I think. Um, yeah, no, that's a really good point. They don't get the credit, and 
they, you know, that they may even be on the part of the local authority some envy that the credit goes to those organisations which wouldn't exist if they hadn't supported them. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's, there's a tension there that we need to be really clear-sighted on if we're going to protect that relationship. But at the same time, when a local authority, as Dundee and every local authority is, is under enormous financial pressure, they've got to be very careful that they don't revert to their core functions because the core functions can take all of the resource and the very things that have changed Dundee in the last 20, 30 years are not their core functions, but the way that they've innovated and invested in culture and taken risks. So if you take you know, the pressure that we're under t- to deliver education, a huge percentage of the council's budget, the pressure we're under to deliver health and care, we've got increasing demands on the local authority budget for health and care, uh, the pressure we're under to maintain the environment, the question that's going to be debated over the next few years ahead is what's left for leisure, arts and culture? And I think we need to turn that argument on the head and say, if you don't invest in that, where's Dundee going to go in the future? Is it going to revert to where it was 20, 30 years ago? <laughs> so we've, we've talked a lot about the, the big issues, the organisations, the structures. Um, I want to move on a little bit to talk about you. So I feel we've skirted around that a little bit. <laughs> um, but so f- for you, in your, the, I mean, the many roles that you've had, there's obviously a, a sort of theme throughout those, which is sort of community and building relationships um, and the sort of facilitation of everything within that leisure and culture sphere. But where does you, personally, where does your expertise lie? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I suppose um, my expertise, that's a funny question. Um, I've been lucky in choosing what I do. So I've chosen to do what I did in Glasgow and I've chosen to do what I've done in Dundee. And I've been really lucky that I've been a role, in a role that I felt comfortable in. I've enjoyed enormously. You know, I just, you know. Just so what, what, is it, what is it that you get the fulfilment from? Uh, doing stuff. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, it was like if someone came to me with an idea, whether it was a cardboard arch or whether it was a shopping centre or whether it was Westward Works or whether it was bidding to become UK capital culture. Um, if, if these ideas can be taken forward, then I'll be with them. I love people who want to do stuff. And I can't be arsed with people who just say, oh, not sure that's going to work. Can't do that. Mm, suck your gums. There's too much of that. So... I've been lucky that I've been able to work in an environment and given the permissions and given the support to work with the fantastic people that I've found in my career and in Dundee uh, who want to do things and make change. And you can sort of help them make that, yeah. that happen. I, mean, that, that's, I really believe that. that if, you're, if you're in a role which has got the privilege of got a title like director then it's not there to sit down and do nothing, but it's actually to be an enabler and to work with others and to give them those chances. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that's absolutely fundamental to that kind of role because you could, you could sit back and just, you know, close the shutters. Um, and not, you couldn't in Dundee. People would chase you out. <laughs> but it's, 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 yeah, it's an opportunity to try to do things which are both fun and which have social purpose, and which have good outcomes. And so, what does the future look like for you? 
For me personally, well, yeah. I, I've made it very clear that <clears throat> probably this year I'm going to stop work. My, my own job's going to be advertised quite soon. Um, and um, beyond that, I want to remain in Dundee, too, too committed to the city to leave it. Um, a number of the voluntary roles that I take on, the trust roles, I would like to continue in. Um, but I've got no, no plan B. I, just, I, I want to try and make sure that what I... I'm committed to and what I uh, have been involved in over the last 30 years in Dundee is handed over in good shape and uh, I want to be around to support the people who've made these kind of moves. I'd love to see Westward, for example, develop as a cultural hub. Uh, and uh, So I've got, I've got no kind of immediate plan apart from um, wanting to spend more time with a, a grandson in Toulouse in France than I can do in my current role. And so, I mean, you touched on it there with the Westward Works project, but is there anything that you really want to see happen in Dundee in the next, say, 5, 10, 20 years? What, what would you mm. love to see happen that's maybe come from your role, that's maybe come from other things that have happened in the city um, over the time that you've been here? Well, when Westward would, would be, for me, symbolic of a commitment to a sector in the city that needs to be nurtured and persuaded to stay. There are still people who, for economic reasons, will move, whether it's to Glasgow or to London or to Manchester, they'll move because the business they're in will be more nourishing if they go there. And I, I think globally now, people can live and work in a place which has got a great cultural offer and deliver. Speaking to Hayley Scanlon uh, recently, she was, she was saying that. She was saying, you know, I can do my work anywhere in the world. I choose to do it here and I can deliver it and sell it anywhere. I think that's a great kind of aspiration for the city. Why would then people stay here? They'll stay here for the same reason that they congregate in Leiden or they congregate in Graz or they're congregating in Geelong. It's because of the quality of cultural life, the access to good quality environment and the, the friendship and association that they get in the place. If you tick those boxes, people will come. They'll not just stay, they'll come and the city will change and be all for the better. I mean, in the, on the flip side to, to what the question I just asked, mm -hmm. um, is there anything that you weren't able to achieve or make happen in your time in the row or your time in Dundee that, uh, that you would have liked to? Oh, God, how long a list do you want? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, there's a, there's a long list. And some of those projects, I'm frustrated that they haven't been delivered. I think some of them will still be, and I can't, it's not fair to list them. But there, there are things in the sporting sector that we've done. The Regional Performance Centre for Sport, which is opening in Caird Park in a, a few months' time, is an amazing resource. And I think we have improved the sporting infrastructure in the city. We haven't talked much about sport, but in terms of quality of life, sport is hugely important. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of projects. In today's environment, those projects have to be economically efficient. They have to not just wash their face, but make a return on investment. And so um, it's become incredibly challenging to deliver development um, within the leisure and culture sector in what is effectively a post-recession, um, austerity-driven environment. Um, so I would love to see those things happen. I think some of them will. I think they're going to need enormous creativity. They're going to need partnerships between the the private sector, public sector, in a way that we haven't really seen them develop to date. And uh, 
but I'm, I'm confident that the aspiration is here, the appetite is here, and uh, that's what the sector, the city needs to stand up for that, needs to be vocal, because actually it's through public pressure that things are protected or developed, and it's, there's no point in being silent in this environment. And just before we finish up, is there anything that you've been listening to, reading, watching recently that you would recommend? Well, I read a book on the plane called Against Creativity. It's the counter-narrative. It is suggesting that it's a a neoconservative con. We've all become seduced into thinking this way, into working flexibly, into not having conditions of service that you'd have. Um, And I found myself reading it and thinking, oh my God, is that what I've been involved in? And I think if that narrative is out there, if there are people prepared to write about being against creativity, people who stand for creativity need to read that book. Um, Ollie, I can't remember his surname. I'll put Um, put a link in the show notes. I'm I'm not sure I want to promote it. (laughs) But it was a, a, a kind of... It was definitely an interesting read. There's another good book out there, which I read in the plane coming back, called Moneyland. And that was a narrative about how, how, if you like, it's about the the lack of political control of the global economy and the way that money now moves independent of political um, control. And it was a scary read. So these two books about Against Creativity and Moneyland I've read, I'm, I, I don't read that many books, so I can't, you know, I'm not going to sort of bum them off particularly. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's there's something in that in considering the, the perspectives of others, mm. um, whether you agree with them or, or not. I think it's, again, again what we talked about is um, the ability to have the voice being heard and it's not necessarily anyone's role to say that's right or wrong, Um but it's that ability to, to put your perspective out there and whether you agree with that or not, then that's up to you, right? Absolutely right. And I completely agree with that. And I think if you don't listen to people who've got the counter narrative, then you're just shooting yourself in the foot. You're only listening to what is fed back to you on social media. You've got to be out there and look at the, the, the other stuff. Uh, yeah, and I think we're all guilty of that just existing in our own, our own mm. bubble to an extent. So yeah. yeah, maybe we should all read that book. <laughs> This is dangerous. <laughs> I'm promoting the counter-narrative. <laughs> well, maybe we, it should be a shared resource, so we just buy one copy and we'll just hand it round. I'll buy one for the library. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, That's thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Cheers. So that was episode 86 with Stuart. Um, thank you very much to him for doing the podcast and I wish him all the best for the future and uh, his retirement. Um, I suppose if you want to become the new Stuart Murdoch, um, yeah, the, I'll put a link in the show notes. I think it's the first time I've ever done a job posting, but that, why not? Um, yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes for you if you fancy applying to be the new director of Legend Culture Dundee. Yeah, some some big shoes to fill. Yeah, oh, the next week, the next three weeks, in fact, uh, something a bit special. Um, you might well know that there uh, have been some sort of uh, interim sort of personnel changes at Creative Dundee. Um, so Laurie Anderson has come in to be interim director and Katja Kisova um, has also come in for the next sort of nine months to a year. And I thought it was a good opportunity 
to get them on the podcast and also I'd noticed that Andy Truscott had escaped me um, and <laughs> had not done his own episode. So um, all three of them have recorded episodes and they will be going out over the next three weeks. So it's a kind of three week creative Dundee takeover extravaganza type thing. Um, so next week it will be Katja Kusova, um, then it will be Andy Truscott and then Laurie Anderson the week after. Um, and so that will be the last three in this chunk of episodes. So yeah, lots to look forward to. Um, but yeah, if you don't already, I keep banging on about it, but just do it because you can get all the latest news. Keep up to date with the podcast. It's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and Instagram or facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee or subscribe on iTunes, um, or whatever you use for your podcasts. Uh, but that's it. Until next week. Bye.